We were able to find out that he had a prior record, and it was sealed because he was he was a juvenile when he had actually done basically the same thing to another little girl. A probation officer who is duty-bound to address any kind of violation of probation. And I'm pretty certain that attempted murder and rape of a five-year-old is a violation of probation. When she got on the witness stand to testify, and the moment came for her to identify the defendant. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clementi, with my co-host, Francie Hakes. Hi, Jim. How you doing, Francie? Good. Well, well, as always, you've come up with a wonderful special guest, and today's special guest is Mary Finlinson. Did I get that right, Mary? You did. Well, it's very nice to have you on Best Case, Worst Case, and I know that you're now an investigator for... Georgia Composite Medical Board, and you investigate uh, doctors. Uh, but what was your career like in law enforcement? Where did you work? How long? And so forth. I worked for the Cobb County Police Department um, for 13 years. Um, I was on the road for four, and then I went to Crimes Against Children, um, where I worked for nine and a half years. So that was the child abuse unit where we investigated you know, cases involving child abuse. And for our listeners, Cobb County is in Marietta, Georgia, my hometown. And that's the reason Mary and I met was because I was an assistant DA there when she was in the Crimes Against Children unit. Wow. So you've known each other for quite a while. That's great. And during the course of your career, uh, when you were on the street, I imagine you worked a variety of types of cases. I did, you know, being a you know patrol officer, I, did, I worked, you know, we get called out to all types of cases, you know, from homicides to DUIs to domestic violence. Um, but I wanted to work child abuse cases because that's where my heart was. So I um, worked hard and tried to get into that unit and finally was able to after four years of being with the police department. Got it. And so today we'd like to start by talking to you about your best case. Can you tell us what kind of case that was? Well, um, you know, when Francie told me you guys were going to be calling, it was hard for me to really come up with something you could call a best case because I don't, you know, they're all, they all involve such terrible things. It was hard to kind of come up with it. So 
I just picked as my best case one that um, we had an outcome that was good. So, and it was involving a kidnapping and a rape of a little five-year-old girl. Oh, wow. That sounds pretty horrible. But um, can you just tell us how that case came to be in front of you? Um, well, I was on call in the Crimes Against Children unit, and we got a call that a little um, five-year-old little girl had walked naked out of the woods um, in a nearby area from where I worked. Um, and so it got called in because a worker just happened to see this naked and bleeding girl walking out of the woods. Oh, geez. And did you were you one of the first responders to the case? Um, I, the police, uniformed police, were the first ones that went there, um, you know, and then they, you know, usually you'll see what, you know, is involved in the case and then call out detectives that are on call. Um, so, you know, they originally, Francie will know that normally when, you know, the first person that, you know, is involved in a case involving a child like this, you kind of suspect that person. So, unfortunately, the poor man who found her was the initial suspect that police thought, you know, might be the person that did it. So. He had a bad day. Mm. But then at some point you responded to the scene or to the hospital? Where, where, how did you get involved first? Um, I responded to the hospital. because The little girl was, um, she was seriously injured um, from the rape. Um, Wayne Cody Morita, um, when he had raped this girl, he had done a lot of serious damage to her internally. I mean, also strangled her and left her for dead. So she had what they call particular hemorrhaging, and you know she had a lot of serious injuries. So she was taken to the hospital. Um, but we subsequently, I had to do an interview with this little girl, um, where she described to me what happened, and she was able to tell me um, in really good detail um, about what happened to her. Now, Mary, um, obviously, I remember this case very well because it was my case. Um, if yes. I remember correctly, not only was this child able to give you a statement, but she ha- was able to immediately exonerate the man who had been the one to find her at that dump site, right? Yeah, she was, which was a good thing for us because it freed us up to, you know, focus our attention more. So you, you actually... Talk to the girl. Did she describe to you that the circumstances in which she was left? She did. She, um, you know, interviewing children, Francie knows this, of watching videos that five-year-olds are usually, they're kind of difficult to get a lot of information out of. But this girl, um, she was so smart, um, and she was able to provide me with the detail that I think really is the reason why we were able to catch Cody Marita. Um, she was able to describe to me what happened when she was riding her bicycle. Um, she was able to describe the car that drove up, that he told her he was looking for his dog, um, that he asked her to get in the car, and she did. And she was able to describe for me even, you know, details about the inside of his car. Wow. Um, you know, how the seats were. And, you know, just it was amazing the details she could give. Well, and Mary, one of the things that I tell people about this case that I think was truly remarkable about this child, and as you say, was the sole reason I believe that you were able to identify and catch the offender, 
was she actually sat down at the police station with a sketch artist and did a sketch of him, which later led you to him. Isn't that right? That is true. And it um, many people don't know the specifics that were involved in that, but we actually were trying out a new computer-generated sketch. So it wasn't your typical sketch artist that, you know, drew a hand sketch. She worked with um, the person that did this on a computer, and they were able to generate a computer-generated sketch of um, what she described as Cody Morita. And when that went out on the news, a man that um, had worked with Cody Morita on a landscaping crew recognized that picture. Wow. Wow. And that's how you first became aware of that suspect? It is. And, you know, I know Francie, I'd seen an interview you had done on a, a show one time about this case. And, you know, her her testimony and description for that sketch was really one of the key pieces um, of evidence of why we were able to catch him. But another thing that people don't know about uh, very much is that the the man who worked with Cody Morita on the landscaping crew recognized Cody Morita, and he went to four different police department locations trying to report, hey, I know who this guy is, but he kept getting sent to different police departments. Are you serious? Nobody took his information. Oh, geez. Yeah. Wow. And so, but for his, he's, he and the child are the true heroes in this case because, but for his persistence, of course, the child's ability to give the information, but his persistence in saying, I know this guy, I know this guy, I need to talk to someone. He's the one on the news that hurt that little girl. We never would have had this case, right, Mary? I mean, he even testified at the trial. Yes. And if it, and he won an award, um, we nominated him and he got an award and he deserved it from the Cobb County government because he just kept persisting because people weren't listening to him and they weren't even taking his name down. They weren't, you know, trying to contact the authorities that were investigating. They just kept sending him to other places. And, you know, most people would have given up, but this man kept going and going saying, I know it's him. And he was right. Wow. Well, most of the people in the public, based on what they see on TV, um, probably believe that once you got the guy's name, uh, the case is over. You know, you just go and arrest him, right? <laughs> but in fact, that didn't happen. So how did you actually, what did you find out about him initially, and how did you actually end up building a case against him? Well, we um, once I found his name, um, we were able to find out that he had a prior record. And For it what? was sealed because he was he was a juvenile when he had actually done basically the same thing to another little girl. Wow. And so, um, so we were you able to unseal that record? Um, I, w- I was not able to do that, um, and I really hit a lot of roadblocks with the I hate to say it, but with the juvenile court, um, he had a a probation officer who recognized him in the photo that was released on the news, but she did not call to report it. And when I contacted her, she said that she felt like she would be violating the law because his record was sealed. Um, but, so we had a little discourse there. But <laughs> Yeah, discourse for Mary Finlayson means she got her, she got her butt chewed out. All right, because... 
<laughs> she would not have to reveal what the underlying case was, but she should have. She had, she was under an obligation and a duty to reveal that she knew somebody who matched that description. She didn't have to give any any you know un, she didn't have to unseal any records or give any confidential information. All she had to do was say, "Hey, this guy looks like that that picture." Yeah. Absolutely, and she should have done it and didn't. And they yeah. knew it was him. They knew very well it was him. In fact, they had a discussion in their office when his picture came up that they knew it was him. More than one person declined to call us, and they were very defensive and unapologetic about it afterward. And that's one of the things that I think um, it would have been potentially tragic in this case, but for the persistence of the former co-worker, we never would have found him. And he was 21. Cody Morita was 21 at the time this incident occurred. So he was no longer a juvenile. Right. There, was, there simply was no excuse for them not calling. Right. And, yeah, no reason to protect him or anything. But also, did you say they were in probation? Well, he at the time when this occurred, he, you know, when he was um, convicted of this offense, he was assigned to a probation officer. Right. So um, a probation so, officer who is duty-bound to address any kind of violation of probation. And I'm pretty certain that attempted murder and rape of a five-year-old is a violation of probation. Unbelievable. That makes it all the more outrageous. I mean, criminal. I would say that's criminal conduct. Dereliction of duty and criminal well, conduct. Yeah. We discussed it. Mary and I discussed this at the time, and both of us yes, we did. felt very strongly that we should try to prosecute. We were shot down by our superiors, but Mary and I were in agreement that those people should have been at minimum fired, but we really did try to see if there were charges that we could bring against them because we, too, were outraged on behalf of this child and the safety of the community. Yes, absolutely. So, so despite all of these um, idiots that decided that they weren't going to uh, do their jobs and protect the community, um, how did you actually build the case against him? Well. We had a great case as far as you know. We we were real close with Francie, so we're getting advice from her um, as we needed it. But we. Um, Having that similar transaction, which you know is what they call, you know, he had an issue in the past where he had done a similar thing. Um, with that information, and then unfortunately, one of our detectives um, went to Cody Marita's house and kind of let him know that we were looking for him, um, which I was not happy about. But Why? I couldn't do anything about it after the fact. Why did he do that? Yeah, so he. Well, I still don't know. <laughs> I, you're, you're, I don't know if you remember that, Francie, but they had gotten the call um, with the information that, you know, they had identified a possible suspect from this boss, and this detective took it upon himself to go out to the house and make contact with Cody Morita. Well, he, he declined to come in to speak to us about this issue, which was a big mistake. Because one of our, you know, the, the best things we can do is get him to talk, be at ease, and get a confession. Right. Um, that's best for the case, best for this little girl, not to have to go through a trial. Um, so that was a big mistake in the case. But 
fortunately, um, she there was DNA evidence from um, the attack where he had left semen, and um, we were able to match the DNA with his DNA, even though there was a little problem with the DNA because her blood was mixed in with it, so it wasn't as strong of a sample. Mm. Uh, so I think that was kind of, you know, for the jury, it may have put... I don't think it caused us too much of a problem, but anyway, it was the DNA that finally got us to be able to take a warrant on him. Yeah, and Mary, you you bring up the DNA. It's something that I've talked about, too, in training, and that really is no longer an issue with respect to science. But back in 2000, um, 2001, when we were prosecuting this case, it was an issue because the sample was mixed, and it did give the very talented defense team some teeth yes. in the case. Yes, I remember that. It was really difficult in the trial. The DNA evidence was really key, and it was the biggest, you know, really big point of attack for the defense lawyers. It was. Well, uh, then I'd like to get into what actually happened at the trial and uh, find out how how that went down, because I know, despite whatever preparation the prosecution does before a trial, there's always crazy things that happen. <laughs> that is true, but when you have Francie prosecuting it, luckily you don't have to worry too much about all that because she knows how to handle it. I've heard she's an aggressive prosecutor. Is that true? I would say that is true, but I consider that one of the highest forms of compliment. Well, thank you. Thank she you. She was the greatest. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, Mary, I think what added to the pressure for all of us, certainly for me, and I know for you testifying, was that this case was covered gavel to gavel by the local uh, news affiliates. And so there were, it was a big fight about it at the beginning of the case, but there were cameras in the courtroom tracking the entire case from start to finish. And so... That added, I think, a little bit of pressure. It certainly added pressure to all the witnesses, and I felt the added pressure of the weight of, you know, however many eyes watching what we were doing. But I have to say, in tribute to Mary, she is the best child interviewer I have ever seen. Really? Worked with or seen, oh, reviewed videos of. She really is. And in this case, that videotaped interview of the child was critical evidence. And in Georgia, uh, you are able to admit what would be normally hearsay evidence. You're able to admit that statement of the child so long as the child is sort of present and and um, theoretically available for cross-examination. So that was one of our key pieces of evidence is when you testified, right, Mary? Yes. And as far as the video being able to come into evidence, and I just say, you know, I, I just I'm so grateful that lawmakers made that a possibility because you now I've worked cases where children, you know, would, and Francie knows, you get scared and want to back out of having to testify in court where offenders were getting, you know, not being convicted because the children are too afraid to have to get up and it's traumatic for them. So being able to do the videotaped interview, have that played, and then have the detective testify is so much better for these children, you know, these child victims. Yeah. So. How did you get your training in interviewing children, child victims? 
we have a child advocacy center, um, Safe Path, that is you know worked next door um, to our investigative unit, and they put us all through. At the time, it was corner house forensic interview training, and then child first forensic interview training, um, where you go through you know the, the course for that. But I had over the nine years that I was in Crimes Against Children done more than two thousand child interviews. Wow. Um, of child victims and witnesses to homicide, so. You know, it really, it, it, you get good at it by doing it. You can't do it by learning in a classroom. You really have to just get out there and do it and learn from prosecutors who are critiquing you when you go to trial saying you shouldn't have said this, you shouldn't have said that. So, you know, over time, you just get good at it. All right. Well, if I uh, need such an expert in the future, I will certainly be calling you. So, Francie, I'm going to put this question to you. Did you feel like you picked a good jury in that case? You know, it's interesting. This was a case where I had to try it with the DA, the elected DA, because it was so high profile, so much publicity that the former criminal defense attorney, district attorney, decided that he should be on the case. And so I did all the preparation work, but he tried the case with me. And we picked the jury together, along with a third prosecutor in the office who'd been there a very long time, had a lot of experience. So it was a three-person trial team. And so in picking the jury, we had some arguments about two particular jurors in this case. Both the district attorney and my fellow ADA wanted to um, strike these two younger jurors. They were, gosh, Mary, do you remember they were maybe 20, 21, 22, there was a, um, a man and a woman. So very young jurors. Yeah. All the other jurors were I much— I remember them being young. Yeah. yeah. All the other jurors were much older, but these were much younger. And both of my older colleagues thought that they were too much of a risk to put on the jury. But I, I insisted that I thought they would be good jurors. Why? Why did you think they would be? Um, I thought that they would understand the technology challenges of the DNA evidence— uh, because they were in that age group of people growing up with whatever technology existed at the time. So I thought they would understand that the DNA evidence itself and the challenges and be able to talk to the other jurors who were much older and to whom DNA science at all was just so brand new. So I was I was I prevailed and convinced my boss and my colleague to put those two jurors on the jury. But throughout the trial, we watched them, probably more closely than any of the rest, to see how they were reacting. They were kind of our bellwethers during the case. But yeah. we thought we seated a good jury, yes. Great. And I assume you were, especially with the three-person prosecution team, you were prepped and ready to go. Absolutely. You thought you had all the angles covered? We thought we did. So anything surprising happen at trial? Well, I think, Mary, the thing that surprised us the most, because it doesn't always happen, is the defendant decided to take the stand in his own defense. Wow. Remember that, Mary? Yes. That, yes, and it is surprising, because normally, you know, and you would expect that he wasn't going to. But the worst moment, I think, Mary, you might agree with me, the worst moment of the trial happened when I put the child on the witness stand. I had talked to Mary. Of course, I'd seen her interview. I'd spoken to the child myself multiple times, talked to her mother, talked to her therapist at Safe Path, and we all agreed. We thought she could do it. As you've heard Mary already say, she was a very intelligent child, 
great recall of the events, and so I wanted to put her on the witness stand. And Mary, I know you saw this happening because you were sitting with us at, at the council table when she got on the witness stand to testify, and the moment came for her to identify the defendant. And we'd been very careful about not giving her any photographs, not telling her where he'd been sitting. Those are common lines of attack for children. So we'd been very careful about it. And when I asked her if she saw the man that took her in the courtroom, she looked very closely, very carefully. She even looked at the judge. You remember that, Mary? Yeah. She even looked at the judge, which I think gave the judge a bad moment or two. But she looked all around the courtroom, (laughs) and her eyes fell on the defendant. And she hesitated. I could see her hesitate. But she, she didn't. It wasn't it didn't seem like true recognition. I wasn't sure. Then she looked at me and said, no, I don't see him here. I did not expect that. I really expected we all expected that she would be able to identify him. She had done the composite sketch. Now, he had, of course, done the defendant thing and cleverly um, changed his hairstyle. He was now very pale where before he'd been tan. He was wearing glasses where he hadn't before. So he couldn't undo any of that well um no we couldn't make him no we couldn't make him change the way he looked but i did think about a way that i might be able to get her to identify him and so i think we should talk about what a surprise that was and how you handle surprises like that at trial so there i stand in the courtroom (laughs) having expected this child to easily be able to pick him out, and she doesn't. It's one of those terrible moments every prosecutor, every cop who's pro- who put the case together has experienced. That oh shit moment. What are we going to do now? I, I, don't yeah. know, I don't even know how the idea occurred to me, um, but I suddenly thought, booking photo. And remember, Mary, that booking photo was such a key piece of evidence because it corroborated the child's sketch, right? Yes. So that that looked book, very similar. It did. That booking photo looked very similar to the sketch, and we had already put it into evidence to identify the defendant. So I went and got the photo, which we had never shown the child. I had no idea how she was going to react. It's one of those things lawyers are always taught: don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Right. That never survives an actual <laughs> trial. That's <laughs> great advice, but totally impractical. So I said to her, "I'm going to show you a picture and see if you know this person." And I showed her the booking photo. And you remember this, I'm sure, Mary. She physically recoiled. Really? Dramatically physically recoiled from his photo, but still denied knowing who it was. And she got kind of frantic. No, no, I don't recognize him. No, I don't recognize him. But her behavior on the stand, it was telegraphed to the jury? I thought it was clear, didn't you, Mary? I did. I think her reaction was very clear to the jury that she did recognize him. That's the way I felt. And what happened afterward was sort of even more remarkable. When I went to take her out of the side of the courtroom to go back to her mother after she was finished testifying, she ran straight to her mother outside the courtroom, outside of anyone's hearing but mine, and said, Mommy, Mommy, I saw the man who hurt me. So she clearly recognized him. But she couldn't do it while he was staring at her. Mary, that's pretty common, right? It is. And it's why we don't want them, you know, we want those videos to be able to be admitted into evidence because 
you know, younger they are, the, the more difficult it is for them to be confronted by the person that hurt them. And that's understandable. Well, of course it is. And one of the more poignant me- memories I have of the trial was when she was actually describing her sexual assault because we ha- asked her to, you know, I asked her to tell the jury what the man that took her did to her. And Mary, I, this has always really stood out in my mind. She said, he shot me down there. Remember that? Yes, I do. And of but course, that's what it felt like to her. Exactly. That's her child's mind. That's why it's so important, Jim, to have people like Mary doing these kinds of interviews and these kinds of investigations. She was highly trained because when a child says something like that, of course, it isn't literal. Well, I guess it could have been. But in this case, it wasn't literal. He didn't shoot her. But she did not understand. Right. She didn't understand what actually happened to her. And that was her way of explaining it. That's right. And he had had some kind of a weapon. Was that an air gun, Mary? I can't quite remember. It was a pellet gun. Right. So she knew he had a gun. A pellet gun. And that, in her mind, she associated those things. Well, I wonder if he used it as a foreign object penetration. You know, we never, we we don't know that. Do we know that, Mary? No, and I don't think so, because during the interview, you know, that's, I asked those kind of questions to be able to elicit that information from them, you know, such as, you know, was was there anything else that, you know, that hurt you down there? Or, you know, just you ask different questions so you can find out, you know, and how many times she was hurt. Um, So I don't think so, because we we explore that during the interview pretty well. Okay. Well, clearly this was a tricky trial whenever you're having such a, a young person you know obviously you have to what dear them and make sure they're swearable and all that and obviously she got through that process but still it was a difficult process what was the outcome so mary why was this your best case <laughs> <laughs> because he was found guilty and he is serving life in prison which is where he needs to be and i go online and check every once in a while you know, just to make sure, because he will, you know, and I know, Francie, I've heard you say this, too, that if he gets out of prison ever, he will do it again. You know, Mary, you're so right about that. And in fact, literally one week ago, I was looking online to make sure that Cody Morita, which is, by the way, Wayne Cody Morita, was still in prison. And I saw his most recent prison photo. And to me, he just still so chilling because this was the second child that he tried unsuccessfully or planned unsuccessfully to kill. And with this particular little girl, he had strangled her and left her buried under rocks and twigs and thought he'd killed her. I am convinced that he had thought that she was dead when he left her. So there's no doubt in my mind, Mary, that you're right. If he ever gets out, he'll be successful. He will. Unfortunately, they learn through their, you know, experiences. He'll be better at it the next time. Yeah, well, let's hope that never happens. Um, But the fact is that you guys together did some awesome work, and with the help of a couple of uh, heroes, both the victim, child, and the the person who recognized the person in the community who recognized, not the professionals in law enforcement who recognized the defendant, but the fact that that person came forward and was persistent uh, was, you were able to bring justice, and that's that's a wonderful thing. 
Well, it is. And I think one of the cautionary tales here uh, for training purposes, Jim and I do a lot of training and, um, you know, Mary certainly is a a great uh, resource for that kind of thing. The jury in this case, we talked to them after they convicted him and were horrified to learn that on the initial vote, it was 10 to 2. Two people initially voted to acquit him in the case. Were those those 20 and 21-year-olds? They were not. (laughs) They were not the two younger members (laughs) on the jury. I was pleased to report to my boss, who who was convinced when we first learned it that they would have been the two, but they weren't. And then, of course, I think it's common practice for juries. They go back in the jury room, they take an initial vote, and then they really review the evidence, talk about it, and eventually reach their verdict. And that's what happened here. The two people were reminded of the evidence in the case. But it is frightening to know, and I think you'll agree with me, Mary, it's scary to think we could have lost that case. It is, but that's the, that's how it is with every case I think that I've ever been in a courtroom in a trial, as you know, Francie, because you never know what will happen when that jury goes back. It's scary because no matter how good of a case you think you have with DNA, confession, you know, witness statements, you can get into that courtroom and it can, you know, hang on one juror who decides that they're not going to vote guilty. So you right. just never know. Right. It's always a roll of the dice. And that's uh, one of the difficult things about this process. Well, we really want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion with you, Mary, um, about this case. And we want to thank our listeners and we're signing off now from best case worst case thank you for listening best case worst case is an xg production produced by jim clementi at empire studios la engineered and edited by terrell parham music by simba sumba and hosted by wondery you can subscribe to best case worst case on apple podcasts spotify tune in or your favorite listening app